0: Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my personal heroes, was faced with a crisis. He was a pastor and a leader of a Christian movement in Germany that opposed the Nazi regime. He He had been outspoken about Hitler in public and had defended the Jews. He was a role model for many Jewish Christians who were seeking to stand for Christ in their country. But then he went to the United States. He was offered a position at an elite American seminary, and he accepted it. So he left Germany. But he soon regretted it. His friends begged him to stay in the States. But he wrote, I have come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I... I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I cannot make that choice from security." He returned to Germany from the very last civilian ship that sailed from the United States to Germany during World War II. A few years later, he was arrested by the Gestapo and then put into prison in a concentration camp where he wrote letters to his fiance. Two weeks before the concentration camp was liberated, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed. There's a statement from a doctor who witnessed Bonhoeffer's last moments on earth. He says this, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he said a short prayer and then climbed a few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. For Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I'm sure that his security mattered to him, but it did not matter most. I am sure that his own life mattered to him, but it did not matter most. I am sure that his upcoming wedding mattered tremendously to him, but it did not matter most. What did matter most to Bonhoeffer was clearly Jesus Christ. Today, our charge will be the same. Philippians 1, 18-30 resounds a clear call for us to let Christ matter most in our lives. Our theme for this whole series is on what matters most. The emphasis in the book of Philippians is that Christ matters most. So our passage today will lay the groundwork for the weeks ahead. The lifestyle called for in the book of Philippians depends on a growing commitment to put Christ before everything. Living this out will truly transform our lives. So Philippians 1:18 through 30 shows us three key areas in our lives that will be transformed when Christ matters most. So let's turn in our Bibles once again to our passage in Philippians 1, 18-30. So far in the book of Philippians, the theme of what matters most has been developing. In week one, Pastor Ralph preached on Paul's opening prayer in Philippians 1, 9 and 9-10. And he used the NLT to capture the essence of this prayer. In it, Paul says, I pray that your love would overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in the knowledge and understanding. For I want you to know what truly matters. From the very beginning, Paul's concern for the Philippians and for us is that we grasp what matters most. And then in week two, Pastor Chuck explained that how Paul lived this out in his own life. Even though Paul was in prison, he was not bitter because something else mattered more to Paul than his own comfort. Even though his fellow preachers were defaming him, he was not bitter, because something else mattered more to Paul than his own popularity. Paul was not under his circumstances. He was over them, because his life was an example of what it looks like when Christ matters most. And then our passage picks up. Mid-verse, at the end of verse 18. Paul is continuing to reflect on his current situation. So we read from the end of verse 18 to verse 26. Let's read. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope. That I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. These are some powerful words. I probably could have read this passage six times, said amen, and sat down. In this section, we see that when Christ matters most, there is unshakable joy. And this comes from Paul's example. As we've already heard, he was in prison. And in these verses, we further find out that right around the corner, he was going to be going to trial where it would be determined whether he would be executed or released. Can you imagine what that would be like? Maybe think back into your mind during a time when you had a very important job interview or speech or test and how you felt the night before. I remember the first time that I was asked to preach here at Good News. The night before, I literally could not breathe. And I'm pretty sure it wasn't a life or death situation. Here, Paul is In the brink of a life or death situation, his life is hanging in the balance. But still he says, yes, and I will rejoice. How can this be? Someone tell me how you can have joy in a moment like this. Verses 19 and 20 tell us. The reason Paul has joy is because whether he ends up living or whether he ends up dying, he is certain that Christ will be honored. And that's what gives him most joy. He sees it as a win-win situation. If he lives, Christ will be honored. Check. If he dies, Christ will be honored. Check. Either way, the thing that matters most to him is going to happen. Christ will be exalted. And for him, that's the goal of his life. That's what matters most. Christ Jesus. He summarizes his outlook in one of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture. Our key verse, verse 21. It says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul is saying that he lives to serve Christ. His greatest passion in life was knowing Christ and making Him known. And this is the secret to his unshakable joy. No matter what his situation, no matter what his circumstances, as long as Christ was being honored, as long as Paul was knowing Christ and making Him known, he could rejoice. Christ was his treasure above all things. My older brother once borrowed my Dodge Neon While I was studying in Ecuador, it was tough to let it go, because that thing meant a lot to me. I have this affinity for junky cars. But I let him borrow it. And then two weeks before his wedding, he was driving home from visiting with his fiancée, talking to her on the phone, and he dropped the phone. And so trying to pick it up, he turned the wheel. The front of the car went under a semi, The front of the car then hit the wheel of the semi and ricocheted, throwing him across the highway divide, across the oncoming traffic, and down into a ditch. He walked out without a scratch. When the news finally came to me in Ecuador, my first reaction wasn't, My neon! Man! I loved that thing! No, you can get a neon these days for like 25 cents. <laughs> I wasn't worried about losing the lesser thing. I was rejoicing because I still had the far better thing, my brother. And in an even, in an even greater way, if Christ is our treasure above all things, if everything else in our life is like a Dodge Neon, that no matter what we lose, we will always have what matters most. And we will always have a reason to rejoice. This is the key to unshakable joy. And I think there's a tendency out there, myself included, to say to God, Lord, if you don't just give me joy, then I don't know how I'll make it. It's as if God has to break open the clouds and zap me with joy. But I already have Christ. I already have my greatest treasure in life. So if I'm lacking joy, is it because God's holding out on me? Is it because He's being ungracious to me? Or is it because I'm being ungrateful to Him? I have to ask myself, do I need more than Jesus in order to have joy? I already have my greatest treasure. It's like when I was at Trinity and I, I had a meal plan. And the very last day of the semester, before the meal plan expired, the cashier told me, Oh, did you know you had $100 worth of snacks on this meal plan? You've got to be kidding me. I didn't even know that whole time I was sitting on this treasure not taking advantage of it. I was living a snackless life when day in and day out I could have been enjoying it. How many of us are sitting on a treasure of joy? I hope not to come to the end of my life and somebody tells me you had an infinite supply of joy this whole time. We already have Jesus. Do I need more than Jesus in order to have joy? Do I need Jesus plus riches? What happens then if I lose my riches? Do I need Jesus plus the approval of others? What happens then when others critique me? Do I need Jesus plus success? What happens then if I am not successful? Music artist Eminem says, nobody likes to fail. I want to succeed in everything I do, which isn't much. But the things that I'm really passionate about, if I fail at those, what do I have? It's pretty insightful for Eminem. But if joy is truly found in Jesus, knowing Him, serving Him, honoring Him, then I can rest, even if everything else I have fails, even if it all crumbles. On Christ a solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. This is the source of my joy. No matter what the world could offer me, He is far better. No matter what I could lose, He is far better. In Him my joy is secure, unshakable. So when we're sick, it's saying, I have a greater treasure than my health. So even though I'm down, I can still rejoice. When we lose our job, it's saying, I have a greater treasure than my job. So even though these times are truly tough, I still have a reason to rejoice. It's when we're dying, saying, this life was a gift. But I have an even greater gift that awaits me. So I can rejoice when it's time for God to call me home there is a far greater treasure. Joy is not tethered to circumstances so that when circumstances go up, our joy goes up, and when circumstances go down, our joy goes down. Joy is tied to Christ. Where there is Christ, there is joy. It's not always a feeling, but it is always a commitment To say thank you. So please don't hear me saying, if you don't have joy, you must not love Jesus. I think for the vast majority of us, it's not that we don't have Christ. It's that we haven't been finding as much joy in Him as we could be. So I think a good place to start is with the day-to-day stuff that we face. If you are facing a struggle today, Whether it's big or small, I want to challenge you to sincerely take some time and ask yourself how is this situation helping me to know Christ more? How is this situation an opportunity for me to honor Christ and to serve Him? Please don't feel like, in order to be a Christian, You have to pretend to be happy all the time. I think of the Old Testament laments all throughout the book of Psalms. They're being raw about their troubles. But a fascinating thing about laments is they always turn on something about God. They'll be lamenting, and then they'll say, yet God is faithful. Boom! So I will praise Him. Joy is about praising God in the midst of hardship. Because we remember that even if we lose the world, we have something far better than the world. But sometimes it's, re- it's hard to remember how He is better in what way is He better. So in order to let His goodness sink in, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily This means every day we remember how good it is that we have been saved by faith in Christ. It reminds us of all the blessings that flow from our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about preaching the gospel to yourself. Reminding yourself of all you have in Christ. And how it relates to your life. It's not this abstract thing that we only give to unbelievers. We all need the gospel every day. And so for me, this week... I just needed strength, and I needed guidance. So for me, preaching the gospel looked like this. Preaching the gospel to myself looked like this. Lord, I thank you that I am forgiven. And because I'm forgiven, you have given me the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I have strength. Lord, thank you that I'm forgiven. And because I'm forgiven, you have given me your promises. And you have promised to give wisdom to anyone who asks. So I do have guidance. I want to challenge you to try this for yourself. You don't have to use my words. But the key is to remind ourselves daily of the amazing things we have solely because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And when we remind ourselves of these things, we see every day what a treasure it is to know Christ. He is our greatest treasure. When Christ matters most, there is unshakable joy. The second area of our life that stands to be transformed is found in verse 27. Let's read it together. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The impact found in verse 27 is that when Christ matters most, there is united effort. So in verses 22 through 26, Paul explained to the Philippians that what was more important to them, to him, was what was best for them. So even though it wasn't his call, he was pretty convinced that God would release him so that he could help the Philippians grow in their faith And that's where verse 27 comes in. This is him explaining exactly how he wants to see them grow in their faith. It's the first command to appear in the entire book. And it says this, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is kind of hard language to understand. So in other words, it means live in such a way that promotes the gospel. And then he tells them how, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He wants them to promote the gospel by their united effort. And at first I had down unity, but I wanted to use the expression united effort because there is a sense here of working together toward a common goal, not standing together, working together toward a common goal. One thing that will really spoil your pleasant trip to a grocery store, and I think this has probably happened to everybody in this room, is when you one, when you get one of those shopping carts and it has a bunk wheel. Especially when you go to Aldi, because then you've already put the quarter thing in, and you can't go out the door that you came in, so you just think i got to ride this thing out. So that one wheel is its like it's got a mind of its own. And so you're either banging into things next to you, or you can hardly move the cart. It's like you have to put all your brute strength into it. People are looking at you thinking, man, that guy's having a tough day. One of the worst thing is, when, when there's like oncoming cart traffic, and you feel yours starting to verge into the oncoming traffic, it's terrifying. And it's all because one part is going its own way. So if our church was a shopping cart, how easy would it be for the Spirit of God to move us? If we are not working together as one, if some are going this way and some are going that way, then we will either be banging into people next to us or hardly moving. But when we are working together toward a common goal, that's when we are moving forward. That's when we're promoting the gospel and Christ is exalted. If Satan didn't know how powerful a united church stands to be, he wouldn't be constantly trying to divide us. And that's why it says, Standing firm in one spirit because when we face opposition and temptation, we will help each other keep standing And I think the best way to do this is through prayer When we pray, we stand firm in one spirit. The more we pray together, the more our efforts will be united So let's have organized prayer Spontaneous prayer, prayer in small groups, corporate prayer, prayer in pairs, family prayer Prayer walks, round-the-clock prayer, prayer with elders. The more we pray, the more we will be united. When we raise our voices as one, we will better be able to work as one. Prayer is indispensable for our united effort. And then it says, with one mind. And this means that every person, every ministry, every event, every activity is asking the same question. What am I doing to reach out? And then it says, striving side by side. And what I picture here is in the winter when you see something like a big 15 passenger van stuck in a snowbank, and you get a bunch of people together, and you're all at the back of this van. And you say, one, two, three. And then you're straining, and you're striving, and you're grunting, and it's moving forward little by little. And it's always amazing how much different it makes when one person runs to their car to help out. You are all pushing together. When we are striving side by side, we are pushing together. We need each other. We carry more of the load when you're not here. We can go further when you are here. So we've got to line up and just keep pushing forward for the gospel. And i got to say, it's been amazing to see this taking place with Vacation Bible School. We've had people step up all across the board and say, yeah, I can do that. We've had people stretch themselves to say, yeah, I can do that. Because this isn't a church ministry thing. This isn't an outreach ministry thing. It's a good news Bible church thing. And it's been awesome to see that taking place. We all have a part to play. So if you can't be at VBS, would you pray? United effort comes when Christ matters most. We will have different opinions, but Christ matters most. We will have misunderstandings, but Christ matters most. We will have personal preferences, But Christ matters most. When Christ matters most, He is above anything that could otherwise divide us. We unite because we are one in Christ. And that's what matters most. So the third area of our life that will be transformed is found in verses 28 through 30. and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their dis- destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here, that I still have. These verses describe that when Christ matters most, there is unashamed witness. In the context of what the Philippians are going through, they are in a Roman colony. And opposition was probably rising. The city was known for their worship of the emperor. It was common that before all public events, everyone would have to say, Emperor Nero is Lord And Savior. The same words that we use of Christ. And so when the Philippians would refuse to give that title to anyone else except the true Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they would stand out. They would be made targets. Their unashamed stance would bring opposition and eventually suffering. But the fact that they were still undaunted by suffering would send a message loud and clear to their opponents. Verse 28 tells us that their unashamed stance would be a clear sign to the opposition. The fact that they were so different, so sincere, would be a witness that they truly had a relationship with Christ and that their opponents were not right with God. But how so? How could it communicate that? In a different way, I can relate myself. How I came to Christ was brought about by me standing in the back of a chapel. And as I looked out, I could see all these people singing worship to God. And then it dawned on me. I don't know God like they do. There was something so sincere, so genuine about them. That I realized, if that's what it looks like to be right with God, then I must not be. And so I repented that night and committed to following Christ. I asked God, help me to know you like they do. So when these Roman soldiers are persecuting the Philippians, can you imagine what they might be thinking? Who are these people that would suffer for what they believe. Nobody suffers for something that they're making up. Nobody suffers for something that they feel half-hearted about. They're so genuine, so sincere. There has to be something more there. I wonder if even just one Roman soldier thought, what do they have that I don't? If that's what it looks like to be right with God, then what of me? I know another person who can relate to this besides me. As the letter of the Philippians was being read for the first time, there was most likely a jailer sitting in the Philippian church listening. He was the guard assigned to Paul and Silas in Acts 16. Can you imagine him hearing these words? He had seen Paul and Silas treated shamefully, no rights, no trial. They were beaten with, with bundles of wooden rods and then handed over to this jailer. He took them into the innermost, darkest part of the prison. He fastened their feet into stocks. He probably had never heard of Christ. But then in the middle of the night, in the middle of the prison, bruised and bloody, Paul and Silas, began singing praises to God. The Philippian was there. The Philippian jailer was there. And then an earthquake came in the night. And Paul and Silas could have escaped. But they saved this jailer's life by staying. So he came to them. Can you imagine him thinking... Who are these people worshiping in the middle of the night? They didn't know what would happen to them the next day. They were beaten. They were severely mistreated. But they're praising. Who are these people that wouldn't leave? Even though they could have fled. You know what he said to them? He said, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And so he took them immediately to his home to share the good news of Christ. To his whole family. And his whole family believed. And his whole family was baptized. And his whole family was probably sitting there listening to this letter. As it was read for the first time. So Paul is telling them, go and do the same. Go and be unashamed witnesses. You never know who's watching. We never know who's watching. Is it our coworkers? Is it our kids? Is it our classmates? What do our lives say about our Savior? You never know how God will use it. You and I probably won't suffer in the same way Paul and the Philippians did. But when we're ridiculed at work, what does it say? When we give our food to share with the hungry and our kids see it, what does it say? When we won't compromise our integrity for the sake of popularity and our classmates see it, what does it say? What do our lives say about our Savior? Unashamed witness is a declaration that Christ matters most. It says, you can take my money, knowing Christ is far better. You can take my comfort, knowing Christ is far better. You can take my freedom, my rights, my dignity, knowing Christ is far better. You can take away my life, being with Christ is far better. Our lives are a living testimony that no matter what We stand to lose from following Christ. It doesn't even compare to the greatness of knowing Him. So my prayer is that throughout the summer, you and I would resolve to let Christ matter most, more and more, and let this thing transform our lives more and more. Because when Christ matters most, there is unshakable joy. There is united effort. And there is unashamed Witness, may knowing Christ be our greatest treasure now and forever. Let's pray, Lord God. We come before you and we first confess that it's not because I was so good that I have this treasure. It's not that I earned it. It's that you freely give it. You came that we might be saved. You sent your son to pay the ultimate price for us, that this could be our treasure now and forever. So I pray that we would not take this for granted, that we would appreciate it day in and day out. I am forgiven. And there is a far better treasure that awaits me someday. Lord, I pray that you would transform us by this. That we would have more joy. More working together towards a common goal. And even more bold witness. Lord God, we we come before you. And we say, "I, I can't conjure this up by my own effort. Would you have your way in me? Would you work this out in my life? For your praise, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you...